Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about high-performance computing with Chris Nuremberger, the creator of TVM CLJ. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, glad to be here. Great. Yeah, glad to have you on. So you're part of a relatively new company called TechAscent in Boulder, Colorado. Can you tell us a little bit about what TechAscent does? Because I think that's sort of a good context to set for TVM CLJ. You know, TechAscent exists to basically provide entrepreneurs, small businesses, and developers with simple, precise, and effective software. Cool. So is there any particular areas you're, you're working with or general software development? I would say most of the areas we work with are not high-performance computing. Most of the entrepreneurs we run into and the most of the people we run into, they want their concept developed and they want it to work. And they want to know how much it's going to cost up front. And we can provide all these things. So it's really general to who we meet and what they want to do. Right. And do you use Clojure much in this? All the time, as much as we can. (laughs) And so I have programmed computers for a long time. And I started with C and C++ in the graphics industry. And I, I used it again a lot in GIS and worked at NVIDIA for many years. I've used a lot of languages, C-sharp, Java, F-sharp, used a little bit of Haskell, used a lot of Python writing code generators way back in the day when I was doing graphics engines. And I found Lisp and I decided that Lisp offered higher leverage in terms of I could get more done with fewer lines of code at the language level than other languages that I'd work with. And for me, I don't mind type systems. If they're there, I will use them. If not, then I will type check what I have to, and I won't go further than that. And I don't mind parentheses, obviously. So <laughs> so I think uh, that's that's that. Nice. And so I saw, uh, it was, was it this week or last week? I think it was just this week that you announced the TVM COJ library. So that kind of sent me down the path of looking at the library and then looking at TVM itself, which is a, well, maybe I'll let you explain what it is because I don't feel like I've got a a complete handle on it. So yeah, can you tell us about TVM and then what TVM CLJ is? Yep. So TVM is the front end to a new type of compiler, of which there are several, that is very good at taking kind of dense numeric code or data-centric problems that are numeric and allowing you to compile them and restructure them and put them on multiple backends and basically giving you a platform to program these things for CUDA or OpenCL or RockM or CPU or an FPGA without having to restructure your algorithm itself. You just kind of change scheduling parameters around your algorithm and it does what it needs to to reorganize how data is being accessed and stored and such. Great. Uh, so, and this is primarily, or it's it's used in deep learning as one sort of strong use case, but that's not the only place it can be used, is it? No, it's not. The TVM is specifically focused on deep learning. It's absolutely clearly focused on that. However, it grew out, at least partly it grew out of research done in image processing. And it uses the IR from another one of the compilers, and that compiler is named Halide. And that compiler is used at Google for almost all of their image processing. My guess is Apple's got a similar tool. But in any point case, you can use these tools for lots of things. 
and they grew out of generalized research into how to take these dense kernels, like a GEM kernel, and why is how to restructure them to make them fast for different environments. And it turns out image processing and neural nets have a lot in common, even if you're not doing image-based neural nets. I see. Uh, and so then what, what is TVM-CLJ? So TVM-CLJ is from the ground up, JNA wrappers on TVM. So the basic C interface of TVM is wrapped with JNA. Then there is a fairly thorough architecture wrapping all of that, allowing that we developed writing Cortex a year ago to enable computation on data types that aren't native to the JVM and to enable very rapid copying of containers of contiguous containers of data. Because it turns out, especially on the JVM, you're never dealing with the native data type you are going to use on the device. There's always going to be a transfer step. And for a lot of the problems, the transfer step ends up being so expensive that it makes it not worth doing the problem in the first place in a better system. And so in order to greatly expand the set of problems you can use, you absolutely have to have as fast of a transfer step as you can. And that's the whole tech.datatype subsystem is focused on, number one, more data types than are supported by the JVM, and number two, transferring data between contiguous containers as fast as possible. So can you talk a little bit about the data types that are not supported by the JVM and why you might want to use them? Yeah, so the JVM doesn't support unsigned data types, and that's the first big one. So image processing always is unsigned data types. And a lot of scientific instruments are producing tons of unsigned data. And satellites, for instance, may be producing very large image-like things with unsigned data. It may not be byte data. It may be short data. Neural nets now are working on half-float data. So there's a range of data types that are outside the view of the JVM. And we can't extend the JVM to add more primitive types. I don't think I'm not proposing to do that. But we should be able to work with them regardless. So how do you work with them uh, if they're not on the JVM? Well, there's a lot of engineering under the covers of the data type system to, for instance, if I say a buffer is unsigned byte, what I mean is, is going to be stored as bytes on the JVM. And I can't get around that. But when you read or write to it, there's a transformation step to probably a wider data type. So unsigned bytes go to shorts, for instance. All the math happens in shorts, and then they get transferred back to unsigned byte through an operation that will give you back the same result you would have gotten roughly, like in most cases, as if you had just stated unsigned byte land. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so does that mean there's a lot of copying or you know, it's using, you're doing a lot of casts back and forwards then? There are, absolutely. However, most of that is done in kind of dense arithmetic in kind of the tensor subsystem. And that's actually another place where having a tool like TVM is useful because I can do unsigned arithmetic on the CPU without all those casts. And I can take all my dense things and do them all at once and then cast them once, you know, back to the byte land that the JVM lives in. Right. So it's not going back and forwards, back and forwards. It's you send them across once, right. do all your work. And then when it comes back, it comes back in the, the right format. Exactly. Right. Okay. That, that doesn't seem quite so expensive then. And how are you uh, doing your efficient copies? Is the data off heap to start with or 
It may or may not be. Yeah, how, how are you getting it? Yeah, so let's talk about that. That's okay. a key aspect of how this whole system works. And nobody talks about it. And it's something that is important for the long run of this working well. In that there's two aspects, right? Number one, we have multiple data types. So you might have a copy from a container of one data type to a container of another data type. So that's one aspect. And that's where kind of I have to convert all the data, upcast it or whatever, and then convert it to the other data type silently. And I've written a bunch of very carefully written macroed copy functions that are exactly specific to the two data types. So under the covers in the data type library, there's this huge map of container type, source container type, destination container type, source data type, destination data type. There's four possibilities there. And that map is specialized out in various different ways. So the first thing I do is I use macros to know exactly the data types I'm talking to. Am I talking to arrays, Nile buffers, or something else? That's the first thing I do, and there's a lot of engineering there. The second thing I do is, if I'm dealing with a C++ heap buffer or out of the JVM buffer, then the JNA library has optimized pathways for some of those, assuming you're not doing a marshalling pass. So assuming it's floating point arrays or whatever to a floating point pointer, then that library, the JNA library already has marshalling or already has a fast path for that. Then finally, I find the C library mem copy for when it's, you know, heap buffer to heap buffer. And I use mem copy when I can. And if none of those work for you, then uh, probably you're in tensor land of some sort. And you can custom generate the code that will work for you with TBM. And off we go. Great. And is there a way to sort of throw on a very inefficient transfer path? Are you able to say, like, rather than just trying to do this, mm -hmm. let me know that I've coded it wrong? Or do you not run into those cases? You absolutely can. There's a Boolean deep in the data type library that is exactly throw on slow path or something like that. <laughs> and if, it, if you okay. set the Boolean to true, it'll it'll throw. But the slow path is probably 100 times slower. I mean, I think, it, I think it's 100 times slower than the optimized closure methods that I wrote, and they are 10 times slower than if you hit the mem copy or a fast path somewhere like that. So if you hit the slow paths, you will know it. It will be the top thing on your profiler. Right, okay. So it sounds like you've put a lot of work into this. Uh, and so what's kind of the, the, the motivation behind this? And maybe talk a little bit also about, I guess, how this came from Cortex, because I know you were really involved with building that as well. So... Cortex is when I first saw that this type of thing was crucial to doing high-performance computation from Clojure. So from day one, I saw Cortex as simply an application of high-performance numerics, period. And I see all of machine learning that way. So if you have a solid subsystem for doing high-performance numerics, then you can do good machine learning libraries. If you don't, then you can do machine learning libraries and they won't scale. So... For me, I've done a lot of high-performance work, and I always got frustrated when people said that make a blanket statement like Clojure's slow, or Java's slow, or JavaScript's fast, or who knows what, because the definitions of those are very vague. And it turns out if you capture a few of the common cases, then and I can bind to something like TVM, then effectively... I can use Clojure for a huge more range of problems than I could have before because Clojure's got all the things it's really good at and it wasn't good at high-performance numerics, but with TVM now it is. And so 
a lot of things that are good at high performance numerics are not good at what Clojure is good at. So for me, it was just kind of like, this is the area I like to work in. This is the language I like to work with. Those two aren't speaking. So let's try to make them speak. And so was there a client project that you were able to work on as part of this? Or was this you know in your own unpaid time? This was in my own unpaid time. Mm. And so TBM specifically, which I have to say, I made money by investing. When I worked at NVIDIA, I invested in NVIDIA. So I don't have a need to make money tomorrow. I have a need to make money again. Uh, I'm not so wealthy, I never have to make money again. But <laughs> part of me is just in the back of my mind saying, if I want to use Clojure to tackle the types of problems I like to tackle, it's got to be there for it. And I can't have a client wait four months before I start because I want to do a tool to use it. You know, More of the foundation's got to be there. TBM was open sourced in the first place. And that uh, Tianqi Chen also built something called XGBoost. These are tools are so involved and expensive to develop. And if they can afford to open source those tools, I can certainly afford to open source TBM, CLJ, you know? Yeah, I like that. And it's creating a huge amount of value for people uh, open sourcing it. Like you say, Apple may have something like this privately, but uh, we don't get to benefit from it. Uh, at least not yet. No. So uh, Cortex was, I guess, a, a similar approach at this. How is Cortex different? Uh, you know, why why did you not sort of continue working on Cortex? What's what's kind of the, the differences there? Well, unrelated to my departure from Think Topic, I found TBM, <laughs> and I realized that if TBM worked as advertised, then Cortex would have taken a quarter of the time, if that, right? To develop or to run or? Yes, to develop. Ah. I spent so much time writing a generalized math backend and writing CUDA kernels for this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, interfacing with CUDNN, which is uh, CUDA's. I, I just spent a lot of time doing these things. And TBM's a better way to do all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, okay, that is awesome. And instead of making Cortex go further and... I don't see a lot of community support for Cortex and I see good reasons not to support it in a lot of ways. So instead of going further in a way that's probably not productive for the larger closure community as well, I'd rather just spend time on TBM and it's a smaller bite. Like I'm not controlling a whole machine learning system now. I'm just controlling a tiny little compiler, but I feel like there's space for closure specifically to be used in a lot of places. It's not used now. And this compiler is a piece of that. I'm sorry if I sound like a record, with those repeating that, but that is a key aspect of it. Clojure's tiny. The community's really small. We should be working hard to build bridges and expand Clojure's use cases into places it can't be used now, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially uh, for things like deep learning and uh, numerics, where there's so much uh, investment going on in, in other places, and we, there's just no way we can really match it mm -hmm. just by ourselves. Not in the short run. <laughs> in the long run, who knows? You know, but not in the short run. Yeah, yeah. At, at a certain point, uh, you know, just the overwhelming numbers of people working on on stuff do feel like they overwhelm a single hardworking closure developer. Oh, absolutely, they do. It depends on what you're talking about, for sure. You know, that field is moving really fast, and you just got to sit back and take a patient view and kind of pull the diamonds out of it as they appear. And I think that's kind of what both Karen and I are trying to do. 
Yeah, so you mentioned uh, mentioned Karamaya, um, who's been working on MXNet for Closure. So can you kind of give like an overview of sort of what's the landscape of numerical tools and Closure, and perhaps how things like uh, TensorFlow and Cafe and MXNet sort of fit in with TVM? Like, how do we think about all of these different tools and libraries? Well, TensorFlow, MXNet is something totally different, and this is why. MXNet is actually somewhat based on DMLC core, which is the core set of data structures that TVM is sitting on. So MXNet has very natural, has actually TVM running underneath it. When you get an MXNet array, that array has a function on it that says change to a managed deal tensor. And a managed deal tensor is a deal tensor, and that is the tensor data structure that TVM works with. So it's interesting to note that, again, the DMLC people have the numerics back end underneath MXNet. So I was really excited when I saw that Karen was doing MXNet bindings because she's kind of going at the top end, right? How do I feed data into this big system? And MXNet is a very complex, big system. And I'm kind of going at the low end of like, well, what if you want a custom layer type? Or what if you need a complex transformation of that data before it ever gets to MXNet? But they're actually, it's interesting to note that they're all based on the same DMLC core kind of base tensor data structures. So in the future, we can look at a deeper integration of a lot of these tools than what we have right now. Right. And then what about uh, some of the other numerical libraries in Clojure, uh, things like Neanderthal and, and Core Matrix? How do they kind of, compare and you know what are the strengths and weaknesses of them compared to i'm not an expert on neanderthal i use core matrix quite a bit in transforming data around and testing things and that other thing those are going to be useful libraries for kind of i would say low to moderate performance stuff which is 90 percent of everything you need of just doing kind of the the groundwork you need to get data even to the point where you'd want to do machine learning on it. Right, yeah. So I think there's another a piece. So so basically, if you just take a BLAS library and bind to it with JNA or some other way, you have GEM, which is almost impossible to write yourself without TBM. Even with TBM, it's almost impossible to write it in such a way you get good performance. It's, GEM has been something that has been studied by a lot of smart people for a long time. Can you just explain... Uh... Explain what GEM is. Yeah, GEM is generalized matrix matrix multiply. So I have, it's basically um, C gets, I don't know what math you're familiar with, C gets A times B plus a constant times C. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, I did. So its full thing is alpha AB plus a constant times C. And there's transpose flags in there because you can transpose A or B. Great. And so it's quite a complex, it's a lot. To take on at once but but once you have that you have a lot of the kind of you have the performance back end of some of these things but like for instance you know neanderthal and those have eigen decomposition routines and and kind of a lot of these other things that go quite a bit further down the linear algebra path and that's not something that i'm really focused on at all okay to put it mildly like they've got that and i like those routines and that's useful but i'm more interested in as I said, bespoke problems that are separate and completely independent of anything we've seen before and the types of things you find when you're doing 
research and you have a scientific instrument and God knows what is coming out of it. And it's at speed. Right. So we've, we've talked about performance quite a lot or touched on it in different places. Um, so can you sort of give us some an idea of the kind of the numbers or organs, orders of magnitude that you can get using TVM versus other other solutions? So I have a breakdown of this a little bit on um, on the TVM homepage, TVM CLJ homepage. But there are, and the TVM team absolutely has world-class, nobody's even close to them in terms of some of the things that they're doing. And some of the things NVIDIA's ahead in terms of their CUD and library. So it's not a just, I use TVM and I win. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> but if I have a complex numerical algorithm in Java or Clojure, then I'm probably looking at, for CPU alone, I'm probably looking at two orders of magnitude of improvement, which is considerable. That could make something uh, worth money that wasn't before. And that's actually similar. If I have a, if I have a complex algorithm on the, in C++ that I haven't bothered to optimize much, then TBM would probably still get me 5 to 10 on the CPU alone. But aside from that, an important part of TBM is the fact that I can now, with way less effort than before, take those same algorithms and put them on GPUs. And moving forward in time, when we have potentially TPUs, FPGAs, maybe memcompute, who knows, we've got to have a way to transfer some of these algorithms to those environments without totally rewriting them from scratch in C again. <laughs> and TVM gives us some of that. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about the the optimizing passes of TVM and sort of what it's doing differently? Because it you could, when you sort of think about it, you could say, well, this sort of just sounds like a, you know, a C compiler we're doing stuff with, with, you know, unsigned data types and stuff, but it's, it's a lot more than that, isn't it? It is a lot more than that. It comes down to teaching you how to structure your problems and teaching you how to think about optimization in a way that allows you to transfer things to different environments. So when you optimize things, you kind of have three axes that you care about. You have parallelism, and I go into depth about this on the compiler uh, blog post, next-gen compilers blog post, and the highlight people have much better material than I could ever write on it. And so this, is, this isn't just me talking, but this is kind of deep. But you have three axes, parallelism, redundancy, and locality. So how many threads can I throw at the problem? And how much of the problem am I willing to recompute? Often this helps some level of parallelism. And locality, which is if I've computed something, how close to me is it? Is it in L2 cache? Is it in a register? Is it potentially in main memory? And so basically, by where you sit in this space defined by these three axes, is very, very, very hardware specific, mm. um, which kind of makes sense. But TVM allows you to specify your algorithm independent of these axes. You just write it kind of in a certain way. And then it's got this whole scheduling language that allows you to manipulate where that algorithm computes and where it stores intermediate values. And it place things in different spots, but without changing the definition of the algorithm. If you were to try to do this in C++, it is very painful to change where things are calculated because you are recalculating the indexes of your data and you make a mistake over here and it it is just really hard to do. So TVM allows you to write your algorithm and then adapt it to your different hardware very quickly and try different things out. You know, maybe we should tile this problem or maybe we should pre-compute part of this and put it there or maybe you know it's got a lot of different options. It's just easier to do with TVM. The it's like a REPL for high performance programming. <laughs> 
It's the exact same concept where I can try things really fast and I can test them out and they may work, they may not. And in general, I will find the best solution, but I'm not having to get into the weeds of, of writing C++ code and that kind of thing. So how orthogonal is the algorithm you write from from the back end that you are targeting? Are you, when you're writing your algorithm, are you in the back of your mind, are you thinking, oh, I better not do it this way because I'm actually targeting an FPGA and that's going to be bad for it? Or can you kind of not, can you think above that layer? It's mostly orthogonal. Um, of course, it's not a, a thousand percent. You can't do something really naive and have it work. In general, breaking your algorithm down into granular kernels helps a lot as opposed to doing it all with a big reduction in one kernel. But even if you, the scheduling language is so powerful, you can say things like tile this here, compute that there, inline these four kernels into that kernel. You can really change the expression of that algorithm quite a long way. So it's a choice. How much do you want to bake into your definition of the algorithm about how you expect it to be done? And how much do you want to kind of manipulate with the scheduling language in order to adapt to where you are? It's almost the old like bias versus variance trade-off. You bias your algorithm towards the hardware you want, but then the scheduling gives you tons of variance. Sure. And so you write your algorithm and you also have to write your scheduling code. Is there, so I guess that means that you didn't have to have a pretty deep understanding of, of the hardware that you're targeting at that point. You do, but there's a broad simplification that's important here in that basically you have two classes of hardware uh, for now called CPU and GPU. And whether you're OpenCL or RockM or Intel or NVIDIA CUDA, GPUs have some commonalities between them. They have a block thread breakdown, which I don't want to get into. And there's, there's a few things. If you learn these few things, you can at least get it to work um, and then dive into more what you need to for all GPUs. And you mentioned uh, memcompute. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Is it coming soon? What's kind of on the horizon there? I don't, uh, hard to say how soon it's coming. It's been demonstrated in labs in IPy, IBM, but basically what it is, is you can do some level of mathematical operations in RAM itself. So if you think of like, you know, how many bytes of RAM on your machine or how many floats can be represented in RAM on your machine, if you can just take some subset of that RAM and say, in with some memory instruction, add over here, then you really have increased the floating point capacity of your machine <laughs> by a considerable amount. <laughs> you know, and that that's my layman's understanding of it at this level. And I've seen four different definitions of it. And some of them are like analog pieces of hardware that who knows if anybody will ever get to work. But I do think we're going to see some level of mathematical operations done in RAM at some point, at least in specialized RAM. That sounds sounds very interesting. Another thing you touched on was uh, memory latency hiding. So is this kind of avoiding just sort of doing prefetches ahead of time or avoiding, uh, is this more about making sure you're hitting the data that's in, in your L1 and L2 caches? Well, if you have a large, large problem, you have... And if you have enough data, you have a lot of choices about what what is in what cache and when. And on most GPUs, at least with CUDA, a lot of your work is going to be manually managed caching. So you say specifically, I want this data in shared cache on this multiprocessor. I don't want to get in the definition of what CUDA considers to be a processor or multiprocessor or something. But basically, you manage where that stuff is in, in the memory hierarchy pretty explicitly. So... 
I actually think this is how it's done a weather simulation where you have a huge, huge area that you want to compute. And the reality is, is the effects are only somewhat localized, but really it's a global situation. I think the way they do it is they do it with grids that are slightly overlapping of each other. And those grids are carefully chosen to fit in various levels of the cache hierarchy. And then they have to communicate those results to each other, but you only have to communicate to the people next to you because it is locally a local thing. Basically, it comes down to you can choose how much of your problem you compute and you could potentially recompute all of your neighbor's work yourself, or you could choose to try to use some of their work, but then you're using your cache for previously done work and not for new data and there's trade-offs involved. It's coming down to those where you want to be on those three axes I talked about earlier. And that's dependent on your architecture and your cache sizes and all sorts of other things. So someone can use uh, your TVM CLJ bindings directly. I mean, I know it's general purpose, but if someone wanted to do some AI machine learning kinds of things, how would they choose between something like Cortex and TVM? Well, it depends on how unique is your problem and how big is the data. If your problem's not unique or the data's big, I think you only have one choice and that's use one of the big toolkits. And versus if you, for instance, have some gradient or optimization problem that you want to work on that is unique, you're a researcher or you know this math and it's actually not neural net specific, but it's still an optimization problem and it still does a lot of complex stuff, then TVM is probably your best choice. Or again, I think probably TVM and financial models where you're doing Navier Stokes or something like that. I think there's a lot of places where you might end up here, but I would always recommend your first step should be TensorFlow or MaxNet for almost any machine learning. Actually, let me take that back. If your problem's at a scale where you need a neural network or your problem adapts to a neural network, then I would always recommend MaxNet first. Let's just be concrete. Or TensorFlow. I really like TensorFlow. I think it's really fun to use. Most of the problems you're going to run into that are ML-based, uh, you'd be better off not solving with a neural net. And neural nets introduce a lot, a lot of variables into your equation that you'll all you'll have to figure out every one of them and where it sits in your hyperparameter cube and all this kind of other stuff. So I would strongly recommend for most people, start with XGBoost. <laughs> Even for images, XGBoost does amazingly well on MNIST. And you could always use one of the big image net to pre-process your image into a feature vector and use XGBoost on the feature vector. But XGBoost is so powerful and trains so fast. Again, it comes down to like your evaluation time. You can just try a lot of different things with XGBoost and be done in a day. And each one of those things is taking you four or five hours with the neural net. And so so what is, what is XGBoost? XGBoost is my current favorite ML toolkit. And all it is is gradient boosted random forests, but it was written by mainly by Tianqi Chen, the same person behind TVM. Okay. And I kid you not, if you don't get any signal with XGBoost, I don't think there's any machine learning system on the planet you're going to get signal with. <laughs> if, if you're in an area where that's not true and you know I'm wrong, then you know enough to not be using XGBoost necessarily. <laughs> but for most of us, most people, just try it with XGBoost first. If you get no signal, it's probably not signal in it. Yeah, that's, that seems like a, a pretty good, uh, sensible starting point. Is there anything you're you're really proud of in the TVM CLJ code that you've been working on? Anything particularly tricky? You know, we went through the whole data type architecture, figuring out how to support unsigned data types and having the type checking 
work so that you can, for instance, it'll give you an exception if you say, I want to transfer this data between here and there, and it happens to have a value out of range. It's got the whole checked versus unchecked kind of thing that Clojure has, mm -hmm. right? You can do checked versus unchecked math. Well, the data type library supports that same paradigm, which I wasn't sure about, but now I am. Because it turns out when you're dealing with lots of data and you run into a checking, if you don't check what you're doing at least a little bit, you can spend a lot of time figuring out why something didn't work after the fact. Aside from that, you know, I put so much work into TBM. I explored using Java CPP to auto-generate the bindings and got that all working completely. And then I did a lot of research and researched JNA and figured out for me, I think JNA is clearly better in this case because TBM already had excellent C bindings and redid all the binding layers. And throughout this path, I've been refactoring all these things, trying to make them as clear as possible for somebody else coming in to kind of figure out what's going on. So I'm really proud of the architecture. I'm proud of the vision it takes to do an experiment that takes a month of effort. And I'm happy that it worked. <laughs> we wouldn't be having this discussion, I guess, if it didn't. But yeah, I think the big thing is I'm just proud that the tool's now working and available. And my prediction that it would actually allow people writing Clojure to write code faster than people writing C++, like there's nothing else that does that. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. That's amazing. Ever since Java came about, and I was a programming C++ when Java first came out, or close to it, they always, everybody, as soon as Java came out, they said, like, you know, Java will be faster than C++, it'll only take a few years. And, <laughs> you know, we're just sitting there like, you got to be kidding me. At that time, you couldn't really argue with it because it was totally new. You can never argue with the new thing because it, it hasn't been proven and you can say whatever you want about something that has no data on it. But I think by now we figured out that there's a large class of problems where Java is never going to be even close to as fast as C++, and it certainly is not going to be faster. And to be able to tackle some set of those in Clojure and then turn around to, you know, the C++ guy sitting next to you and be like, haha, I wrote it, it's faster. That's worth a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and have you found uh, that sort of Clojure's interactive REPL development has let you do more experiments, develop this in a faster way than if you were writing in Absolutely. Yes. I like Clojure's REPL is amazing. And I used, I just use Emacs and I use print line debugging. And I don't think there's many people on the planet who can criticize how fast I get anything done ever. So I'm not saying the better tools don't help. And I actually really like IntelliJ. I think the debugger is amazing and parts of it are amazing. But at the end of the day, it's structuring your problem well, using tools that you know well, and a REPL is just an amazingly fast, interactive way to develop complex pieces of software. Yeah, I agree. I think yeah, it's it's probably one of the closures best features and probably one one of the hardest ones to communicate to other people, I find. It's sort of a something you have to experience more than I totally agree. It's something that gets confused because a lot of systems have a REPL like thing. And for whatever reason, closures is way better. And I don't concretely know why. I know it partly it's because the people who wrote Clojure decided that the REPL was going to be the development environment. And so the language from the ground up is partly designed to make REPL development as powerful as possible. And that's one aspect that is definitely true. But 
I don't concretely know off the top of my head why Clojure's REPL is far better than, for instance, Python's REPL. But I know that developing an Emacs is not with Clojure, is not an experience I can get anywhere near aside from developing common Lisp <laughs> using Slime in Emacs. <laughs> and it, nobody else has gotten that close to it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I have wondered the same thing as well. Uh, I don't have a good good answer for that. So just to sort of walk me through, if I'm using TVM CLJ, my data starts in the JVM. I can write some algorithm with your TVM CLJ bindings to describe the kinds of computations I want to do. I can then send the algorithm, the scheduling instructions, and the data across to TVM to actually do the work, and then I get it, get my data back in the end and back into the JVM? Yes, whatever data type you want. Great. Well, I, whatever data type you want, as long as it's uh, a double buffer, a float buffer, <laughs> a, a Nile buffer or a floating point, you know, like array or something, you know, you can get it back in, in a JVM native data type. I will say that. It doesn't mean I'm going to, I'm not going to give you an OpenCV image in persistent vectors. Okay. It's probably, probably good. Good thing uh, not to do that. So, but you may, actually, that brings up a point. If you're dealing with native stuff, if you're dealing with an open CD image or something like that, there may be no transfer step. The way I wrote the bindings, you can operate on an open CD. You can operate on things that satisfy the protocols. One of the protocols is given a thing, can I get back a long integer that is the address of the contiguous data in the thing? And with that, along with a few other protocols, I can just operate, you can operate on it in TBM directly, period. So you'd have some other, in your closure work, you'd have create an OpenCV stuff off heap. Is that right? Or, or how, how so, and then you can give, <laughs> let it uh, just pass that memory address around and work against that directly. More or less, yes. Yeah, that's another one that's kind of deep though. So the demos all do this. You can see a demo doing it. And you can spend time diving through it, and maybe that's a whole other discussion. But basically, I've worked really hard to allow native buffers and native things to work with TVM with no further changes, aside from potentially you affixing some protocols to them so that they can speak in some common languages. Nice. That's something really nice about Closure's protocol. And so people, other people can also adopt this uh, if they have their own uh, stuff they can just adopt those protocols and take advantage of it too. Exactly. And there's a lot of them. I mean, there's, there, most of those protocols are marker or one-liners. So I think in all in all, you're talking 10 different functions or something like that. But, um, but that is a key thing about Clojure that's difficult to tell people why it's so important. But basically, you can ad hoc, make your thing, not you. Actually, if, if it's your thing, you can make it work straight out the bat. You can just derive from the interfaces and go. What makes protocols amazing is if it's not your thing. I didn't write the OpenCV library that I'm using. The Java CPP people did. And they don't know anything about TVM. They could care less about my compute subsystem. But I can bind a bunch of protocols to it. And then I can use their stuff in TVM. And I can do computations on it outside of TVM using the tech compute library and whatever. It's just I can bind these protocols to things way after the fact. And that is just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know other languages that have that after the fact kind of runtime level after the fact binding of an interface to a type in an efficient manner 
in an efficient manner. Yeah, efficient enough. I mean, if you can do it at all, that's the other sweet thing about TVM is it allows you to work on big chunks of data at once. So you can afford all manner of inefficiencies in the transformation steps, really, at the end of the day, in terms of type transformations and this kind of thing. You can do 50 type transformations on the way in and 50 out. It doesn't matter because you're working on megabytes of data with an algorithm that's dense numeric. That, I think, is key for getting good performance out of a lot of the systems, actually, is you can't win with a lot of things, in my experience, and this is absolutely true in the graphics industry, you cannot win if you have chatty interfaces between systems. So, for instance, you don't want to be getting the next byte out of a buffer. I want to, in block, copy four megabytes of a buffer over to here. Mm. You know what I mean? So you can't possibly have an efficient system if you're doing chatty little noisy things. You've got to operate in bulk and you've got to do things in batches. Yeah. Uh, One of the sort of architecture thing, which maybe is interesting, is on ARM devices like iPhones and Android, uh, they have, uh, as I understand it, a shared memory pool between the GPU and and the CPU. Is that right? Yep. Uh, Does that give you... uh, are there, are there things you can do to take advantage of that in your in TVM or in other numerical problems? Yep, totally. There are, especially on those little devices. So basically, you can your application can just share share data with the video coprocessing device or coprocessing device, I should say. It could be a TPU, it might not be a GPU, it could be a TPU, it could be an FPGA or whatever. But usually, they'll have shared memory, and this is horrible from a graphics perspective coming from NVIDIA where uh, shared memory in your frame buffer pretty much destroys your performance, but it's great for a lot of these apps because the transfer step between main memory and whatever card you happen to be computing on is absolutely something you have to think about and engineer around if it's there. Mm, Yeah. And it's free. Is there some locking that takes place to transfer ownership or? A lot of times that main memory is just addressable by the GPU. It's totally free. Nice. That being said, there's some caveats there, and it really depends on what you're talking about. I don't know if the new, like, if you got NVIDIA Jetson ARM board, so an NVIDIA board with an ARM processor and a GPU on it, I don't know that that GPU shares main memory anymore. I know NVIDIA did back in the day when I worked there, but there are distinct problems with that. So I don't know if it's always true, and it depends on your application, but for instance, I do know for a fact that there's a lot of discussion on the TVM email list about people optimizing out optimizing for Intel systems that are embedded that don't have, that do share memory, in fact. And Intel's drivers for OpenCV have flags saying whether they can share the memory with the main system or not. I see. And so who are the sort of companies behind TVM? Who's involved at that level? As far as I can tell, Amazon, Huawei. I really haven't gone and tried to figure out who which engineer is from who, to tell you the truth. Tianqi is at WashU. Okay. So it's naked milk. Yeah. But I think I'm fairly certain I saw somewhere that Amazon was funding it, funding a good a portion of it anyway. Right. And it would make a lot of sense for them to do it. Because if you want to do machine learning at scale, it can't be costing you 10 servers for every thousand images. <laughs> you know, it's really expensive. And they've put a lot of weight behind MXNet as well, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yep. So they can take advantage of this through... Yeah, you know, using using this. Yeah, exactly. And so over time, I think you're going to see it be easier and easier to work with MXNet. And you know what you see is actually what you see is in training, 
even though the training takes a long time and is annoying, you do it relatively few times, but then you go to inference and like ResNet 50 has 176 layers. It's 50 modules. It's not 50 layers. And that is expensive to work with in terms of inference. And so developing the whole graph compiler and developing the whole kernel compiler. I mean, these are all tools meant to make these big complex inference algorithms, for lack of a better term, networks, uh, cheaper to compute. Uh, can you just, uh, just for people who may not be aware of those two terms, can you just uh, describe the difference between uh, training and inference? Yeah. So training is where I want to solve the optimization problem of I have a large network and or I have a blanket black box and I have a bunch of samples and each sample has an answer. And I'm going to take all these samples and throw them through my black box and look at the differences between what the black box predicted and the answer. And I'm going to use those differences to inform the black box of how to get better. So that is training any ML system on the planet. And that's probably any optimization problem, actually. And that is very, very, very expensive. Training one of the bigger nets is something that you can expect to take a week on a single GPU for a world-class system. So that's one edge of it, right? But then if you're Amazon scale, you have one team and say they have 10 boxes, each box has eight GPUs, they have 80 GPUs, they can train whatever they want. And they're done in like a couple days at the most, maybe three or four days. But then you are publishing your facial rec service. You could have a thousand customers. You could have, you know, a thousand images a second or a thousand images an hour. Probably not, probably more like a second. And that you want to do inference on. And that's just a vastly larger scale than what you're training at. Right. So even though people talk about big data in sense of it's important to have a lot of data for certain classes of problems, doing inference at scale, especially if you're Amazon or Google, is even a harder problem in terms of like, how do we do this without boiling the oceans? Literally. Literally. <laughs> so if I want to start using TVMCLJ, is it hard to sort of build the binaries uh, and the bindings myself? The hard is different for different people, but I don't think so. I think that one thing that team has historically done, and it was this is also true for XGBoost, is that they're very, very careful with how hard it is to build their software. So they've put a ton of engineering into their build system. And you can tell by the fact that it feels like there's no engineering behind it, and it's very simple to use. But my experience with big open source C++ projects is that they are not easy to build. And TBM for me was very easy to build. And can I use this on a Mac as well, if just for, for development? Or do I have to be on a Linux system? Our target was everybody. Great. So I provide a Docker container so that you can test out the demo projects without having to build the software, which maybe Docker is not the easiest thing. It was the only thing I could think of, right? And the binaries, if I mix them with the, with the jar, the binaries alone are like six megs. So even providing them with the jar, I think is questionable because who wants to download an eight megabyte jar? Maybe you don't care, but I feel like it's very easy to build. And we put a good amount of engineering into making the TVM CLJ system. Just try to find TVM on your system. So you build it, you install it. It looks for a system level TVM library before it ever will try to unpack anything from the jar. And this is really how MXNet and TVM should be. They should be things provided by your system because they bind so closely to your hardware. Yeah, it would be 
ideal to be able to compile it on the the machine you're going to run it on because it can then take advantage of those hardware features. Is that right? Yes. At the very least, you want to compile your kernels on the machine you're going to run on. TVM could have been compiled with the libraries and hardware you know will be available on those systems itself. But there's a difference between you know compiling the compiler mm. and using the compiler to compile a program. Ah, uh, of course. Yes. In this case, the compiler itself does... Like, I can't run TVM on my laptop if it's compiled with CUDA bindings. So the compiler does have some bindings to the system itself. It's not totally just a general, like, piece of software that does a translation. And what about more general sort of production usage? Do I need to be careful with any memory memory stuff there? Yeah, so, so we outlined some of these things that we have actually run into several times in production. And I bet overall most people have, they just didn't really realize that's what was going on. But basically, if you're allocating a bunch of native RAM, you need to make sure that the JVM has already allocated as much as it needs. Because if you, for instance, say, use dash XMX to tell the JVM, it could potentially have four gigs if it wants it, then you allocate all the RAM on the machine, then the, the JVM tries to allocate some portion of the RAM you said it could have, it will hard crash if it cannot get that RAM. It has no checking for out-of-memory conditions in terms of what it gets from the OS. Its checking is it blinks out of existence. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so what I recommend, and I think people almost always do this in production anyway who are conservative, is always use dash XMS and set it to the same value as dash XMX. And there's a host of problems you avoid this way. And yes, it means you need to figure out how much your service is going to use up front in terms of how much the JVM mothership is going to use. But if you're using TVM, my guess is your native systems are going to use the vast majority of the RAM on the system and your your mothership is going to use a tiny percentage of that. Yeah. And what about memory leaks? Is that easy or hard or how careful do you need to be with that? We've put engineering into making it as easy, easy. So we have a stack-based resource system. And the reason for this is that when you deal, again, my experience from Cortex was if you allocate 10 gigs of floating point buffers, you need to know on exit from this function that those buffers are released absolutely concretely. Because if you try to run the function again, you can't be sitting there hoping the garbage collector decided to release the tiny little stub of those 10 gigs it can actually see. And it's not really fair. It's just there are things in Java you can do with weak references and all these other things to try to game the garbage collector such that and calling GC manually and all these other things, I felt like that was way harder to understand than just saying, when you exit the function, all your shit's gone, and I'll guarantee it. And that's really the only thing we have is that kind of stack-based resource system. But I think that's that's enough. Uh, with careful thought and engineering, actually with not even careful thought and engineering, you have to be careful when you start giving things back to people that are native objects outside of the stack-based resource system. I see, yeah. And so how long did this all take you? It sounds like a lot of work, a lot of design and thinking to create it. It's still a lot of design and thinking, to tell you the truth. But like, <laughs> you know, my good buddy's an artist, and he said, when people ask you how long it takes to do anything, you say, it took 35 years. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, because it might have taken him a few hours to build a piece, or with him, it probably takes him a week to build something substantial but it took years and years to develop the experience and the vision to make it get it done. If you want to talk just programming hours 
of TVM alone? Are you including the time I spent doing Cortex, which taught me enough about the problem to feel comfortable doing it on TVM or not? I don't know. Like, that's pretty gray. So, but I'd say eh, a month of work, maybe a month and a half of work Okay. on TVM alone, not counting the infrastructure. Right. And then 35 years before that to inform. <laughs> right. And then a few years before that to figure out I wanted to program computers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's kind of the, the status of it? What's next? How kind of where to from here? To tell you the truth, right now I'm trying to see how the community absorbs TVM. TVM was a big piece. It's a complex piece of tech. I want to basically not push more really complex pieces of text onto the community, although I have a few others I'm thinking of. I want to sit back and kind of see what happens now. Like who uses it, who doesn't use it. Like, who gets it? I don't know. But I don't have immediate plans to, like, do another big hard thing like TVM. I have, there's an extension to TVM system that I want to do in C++. And there's enough bindings to two other libraries I really like. XGBoost is one of them. Smile's another one. And those bindings are pretty much done. And I don't know. It just, it depends. If someone comes to me and says they have a problem they want me to look at with TVM, then I'll, by all means, I'll be doing that. That'll be my next thing. Nice. So is there anyone else you'd like to thank for this work? For sure. I think first and foremost, the main contributor to TVM, Tianqi Chen. Absolutely. He has given so much of open source software and all sorts of things that is really high quality. He deserves a big round of thanks. There's a few other people on TVM on their discussion forums and such that they've just been really helpful. And when I've asked questions and that kind of thing. And I think, oh boy, if I miss someone, I'm going to feel horrible. I don't know. At this point, my, my profs in college who got me into this type of thing and, you know, the people in NVIDIA who taught me how to, to do a lot of this in the first place. And I don't know, there's a, a million in that line of people who I could thank at this point. But for TVM specifically, I just want to thank the TVM team. They've just done an amazing job. And this is tech. You don't find it every day. This isn't your average open source project. This is something that is really valuable. It's really powerful. And they could have very easily not open sourced this. Great. Well, I'm really thankful for this. And I'm going to be looking to see how I don't have a ton of numerical problems that I work with, but I'm definitely going to take a look and see if there's a way I can apply TVM to my work because it looks pretty cool. Thanks so much for, for the time you put into release it and create it and talking with me today. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what comes in the future. All right. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.